0: Okay, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, concluding our series in 1 Thessalonians by looking at the last several verses here, starting in verse 25. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, says, "'Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters.'" The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to the word today with expectant hearts. Um, We know that your word is living and it's active. We know that through your word, you speak to people. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and to speak to us as only you can. I um, surrender my, my words and my thoughts and my preparation to you even, and just say, Lord, I ask that you would minister to your people through these things. Thank you that we can come confidently to you as we look at your word, that, that you, you love us, you love communing with your children. And as your children, we just say, Father, we, we uh, come expectant asking you to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we finish 1 Thessalonians, we want to remember that um, this was a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Thessalonica. And as he concludes the letter, he does it in a pretty typical fashion for him, and he mentions a few things here. First of all, he says, hey, make sure you gather everybody around and and read this letter to them, because the letter was for the whole church. Uh, And then he tells them, uh, I want to pronounce the grace of Jesus upon you, which was a typical thing that Paul would have done at the end of his letters. And then he tells them to greet one another with a holy kiss, which may sound a little strange to some of us, but in the first century Israel, uh, this was the most common Way to show honor to one another. In this particular case, it was also a beautiful symbol of solidarity because all these different people were gathering in this church from different backgrounds, and this was a uniting thing, saying, Man, we all uh, are are, are following, believing, coming under something that is greater than all of us. But there's one thing I want to point out today that was not always typical in all of his letters, and this is where we're going to spend our time. At the beginning of this passage in verse 25, he says, Brothers and sisters, pray for us. I want to start by asking you to imagine something with me. Imagine that you are living in first century Israel and your entire life you have been waiting for the Messiah and then he shows up. Jesus is here and he starts performing miracles and he's doing things nobody does. He's saying things that nobody says in a way that nobody says them. And then he starts picking a few people to follow him, and asking them, come and be my, my disciple, follow me and learn from me. And then of all the people in Israel, imagine that he chooses you to be one of those disciples, to follow him and to learn from him. And so you do, you say, yes, you're walking with Jesus, you're in close community with Jesus, you're watching him do all these incredible things. And you know, Hey, dude, I got an inside track to Jesus. I bet if I asked him to teach me how to do something, that he'd probably teach me how to do it. My question is, if you could ask Jesus to teach you how to do one thing, what would it be? Jesus, teach me how to preach compelling sermons. Because when you do that, man, I see people's hearts move toward God. Jesus, teach me how to heal people with these lifelong diseases. Remember that thing where you took the mud and the spit and you put it on the guy's eye, then he was healed? Well, what? Teach me how to do this, Jesus. Teach me how to cast out demons, Jesus. I see people getting delivered. What would it be? What would you ask Jesus? If you could ask him to teach you how to do one thing that you saw him doing, what would it be? Well, in Luke chapter 11, we're not gonna go there, but the disciples were in this exact same spot. They'd been following Jesus for a couple of years. They worked up the courage finally to ask him to teach them to do one thing. What may be surprising is that they didn't ask Jesus to teach them how to preach. They didn't ask him to teach them how to heal people or how to cast out demons. They asked him to teach them to pray. What is noteworthy about the way that Paul ends First Thessalonians here is not that he mentions prayer in general. Paul talked about prayer all the time. He did it a few times in this book. What is noteworthy is that Paul asks the church to pray for him. I mean, he's Paul the Apostle, right? Like, doesn't the dude know how to pray himself? Isn't he the guy that you ask for prayer from? You don't expect Paul the Apostle. I mean, he's like a legend of missionaries and church planners. The dude who was shipwrecked. He was beat. He was almost killed. He was imprisoned for his faith. I mean, he's a legend. And he is coming to you saying, will you pray for me? Putting himself in a place of need. Will you pray for me? Why would Paul the Apostle ask the church to pray for him. Because let's be honest, if I could ask Jesus one thing like the disciples, teach me how to do one thing, I'd be like, hey Jesus, that thing where you read people's minds, and then you like say the thing before they say it? Hey, come on, that's crazy. Lord, teach me how to do that. I don't think it would be prayer. And I don't think that the disciples were like, okay, preaching, yeah, we're killing that. Uh, Healing people, nailed it casting out demons. Good. I guess prayer, we should probably ask him about prayer, right? I don't think it was because of that. Why did they ask Jesus to teach them how to do this one thing? I think it's because of all the things they saw Jesus do. Prayer was the thing that they saw have the biggest impact. When Jesus would pray, things would change. Why does Paul, the apostle, ask the church to pray for him? He knows the power of prayer. So we could spend weeks talking about all the different facets of prayer. But today I want to focus on specifically two things having to do with the power of prayer. First of all, that prayer works. Here's one of the things about prayer that's a little weird. When we pray, we don't always feel like we're doing that much. We like to feel like we're doing something and knowing that something is happening and knowing that the thing we're doing is working. Sometimes when we pray, we don't always know that something is happening. This can be hard for us. If you get sick and I bring you some chicken soup, I feel like I just did something to help you. And you feel, let's be honest, you feel like, thank you, Dom, you did something to help me. But if you're sick and I pray for you, I may not feel like I actually did that much. And you may not actually feel like I did that much. Because if you're anything like me, first of all, you like chicken soup. Makes you feel good, right? But you also like immediate results. You like to know that what you're doing matters and what you're doing is accomplishing something. You want to know that it it worked, that it was getting something done. The question is, does prayer actually do anything? Well, Scripture would tell us yes. In fact, that's exactly what the Bible would say that the effective prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. I want to bring you chicken soup when you're sick because I feel like doing something. But here's the other side of that. When I bring you chicken soup or meet your need in some way, I am only doing for you the little bit that I can do for you. And don't get me wrong, you're thankful for it. I want to, I'll still bring you chicken soup. I wanna do that for you. But let's be honest, it's not everything that you need in that moment. The truth is I have limited resources. I have limited power. I have limited wisdom. And so in any given situation, I can only give to you what I have. And it is all limited. So in any given moment, I may not be able to meet every single need that you have. However, when you invite me to pray for you, we are both acknowledging that there is something beyond us that you need. A need that only God can meet. Prayer allows God to be in the driver's seat and invites him to move. As one writer said, when people work, people work. But when people pray, God works. Now, will God use us to do his work? Absolutely. But the truth is, there are some needs that we don't even know about or aren't even aware of until we begin to pray. We'll talk about this a little bit more later. But also, there are actually unseen things happening in any given situation that we can't actually meet that require the unlimited resources, unlimited power, and unlimited wisdom of God. Ephesians 6 talks about um, the fact that all Christians are in the middle of a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual war going on. We can't see it, but we feel the the effects of it in the physical realm, but there's a thing happening in the spiritual realm. There are demons who are influencing people in situations, right, there's this crazy battle going on. We can't see it there, but we feel it here. But in a spiritual battle, though, you need spiritual weapons. In any war, you need weapons. In a spiritual war, you need spiritual weapons. Scripture tells us we got three of them. But one of them, Ephesians 6 says, is prayer. There is power in prayer. But who cares if something is powerful if it never gets used? You could have a Ferrari in your garage, powerful. But you will not experience the power of that Ferrari until you drive it. There is power in prayer, but we only get to experience it when we actually pray. I love the story in Acts chapter 12, Peter is arrested by King Herod for preaching the gospel. And it says, uh, starting, I'll put it up on the screen, but starting in verse four, it says, when Herod had seized him, he put Peter in prison, but prayer for Peter was being made fervently by the church. So Peter's arrested, his friends are like, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do about Peter? We gotta do something. Oh my gosh, let's pray. We can pray. This is what we can do. So they begin praying. And then it says, On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. Okay, so Peter's tripping out, right? Doesn't even realize what's happening. The people are back home. They have no clue what's going on. They're just praying. It goes on, and when they, him and the angel, had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from them. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Peter preaches the gospel, gets arrested, as would have been typical in the first century, right? Gets arrested, he's in prison, he's in a jail cell, two guards laying next to him, he's bound in chains, there's two other guards outside prison walls, okay? The people are praying at home, they're like, we gotta do something. As they're praying, God sends an angel, breaks off his chains, puts these dudes to sleep apparently, Peter gets up, leads him out, opens the gates. Peter thinks he's in a dream, gets out. The angel leaves. Peter is like, no angel. All of a sudden he's standing outside the prison walls. Oh my gosh, I guess that was the Lord, right? Leaves, goes to the house where he knows his friends are. There, they're interceding. Lord, please help Peter. Just deliver. In walks Peter, right? In walks Peter. In walks Peter while they are praying. Here's my question. Why did God make sure that at the beginning of the story, it says that the people were praying for him and at the end of the story, it tells us people were praying for him. And that was just like a weird little cute little token thing that they were just doing they had zero involvement in what was happening now, I don't think God tricks us like that I think God makes to make sure that we see that they were praying because he wants us to make the connection between this miraculous deliverance and the fact that the people were praying there was nothing that they could have done in the physical but they knew something needed to be done through prayer something got done yeah but come on dude like really, like, well, maybe God was just gonna do it himself anyways. Does it really have that much impact? Isn't God just gonna do what he's gonna do? Well, look at Ezekiel 32. I'm sorry, Exodus 32. It says Moses on the mountain, okay? So Moses is up on the mountain with God. He's getting the 10 commandments, talking with God. They're doing their thing. He's up there for days. The people are down the mountain. They're getting frustrated because Moses is not coming back. God's not coming to speak to them. They don't know what's going on up there. They're getting frustrated. Then they start to make these golden calves. They start worshiping these golden calves like they're God. And they're like, God didn't bring us out of Egypt. These golden calves brought us out of Egypt. They're doing all these pagan rituals, blasphemous, idolatrous. God sees it and says, Moses, I'm gonna destroy these people. They're turning from me, they're wicked. They're not worshiping me, they're worshiping other gods. I'm gonna destroy them, I'll start over with you. But then it says in Exodus 32 in verse 11, But then Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God. Moses prays to God and asks God to relent from his plan to pour out judgment on them. He asks God, would you please show mercy to them instead? And in verse 14, it says, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people so the Lord relented. Literally, it means to turn from an undesirable course of action. Some of your translations may say the Lord changed his mind. God would have been entirely just to judge the people and pour out judgment on them, or he would have been just to pour out mercy and give them mercy like he did. When Moses prayed, God changed the plan and relented from judgment, which was the undesirable course of action. Now, when God changes something and decides to do something different, it's not like when man or women, woman changes our minds. It's not when people change our minds, right? When people change our minds, we do it for one of three reasons. Number one, we realize we made a, a bad decision and we're like, oh, that was wrong. That was a wrong decision. I need to change that. Or number two, we get new information that we didn't previously have. And so we make a different decision. Or number three, just because we feel like, I don't know, I just changed my mind. We're arbitrary. But you need to know that when when God relents from something, he, he's not doing because he's arbitrary. Like, I, I don't know, maybe I just, I'm just gonna do something different. now. had a different plan, I'm just gonna do it. He's also not ill-informed, like, oh my gosh, I didn't know about that, I'm so sorry. I'm gonna fix it now that I have your information that you've given me. And also, he doesn't change something because uh, he, was, he was wrong or because he made a mistake and he's course correcting. But sometimes he does relent from an undesirable course of action. What is noteworthy about him doing it here in this situation is that he does it in response to Moses praying. I told you at the beginning, I asked you to imagine yourself, you know, you're one of the disciples, you get to ask Jesus to do one thing or teach you to do one thing. I told you in Luke 11, that's what the disciples did. Well, what I didn't tell you was Jesus responds to them and he he answers their question. He teaches them how to pray and he does it in a few different ways. One of the ways he does it is by telling this story. He says, suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. And you said to the friend, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls to you from his bedroom. Don't bother me. The door is locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I tell you, Jesus says, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is instructing them, this is part of what you need to know about prayer. The lesson here is that God responds to the fervent, persistent prayers of his children. Now, obviously there are things that God has sent in motion that no amount of prayer will change. If you pray for Jesus to not return, not gonna happen. This is not though, instead of the sovereignty of God, this is in conjunction with God's sovereignty. How does that work exactly? I don't know, but within God's sovereignty, some things change when we fervently pray. Does that mean that we have some kind of power over God or over his decision-making or some power that he doesn't have? No, it's actually still his power doing the work. We are actually joining in with him saying, God, would you, would you do this thing? When we pray, we don't bring some kind of power to the table. We are actually asking God to come and move, the one who has the power. When people, when God's people pray, God moves. But when God's people pray, God does move. So then what do we do? We pray. When you look around the world and in your life, you see all of these needs everywhere that you look But let's be honest, in any given situation, you do not have everything that you need to meet that need. So what do you do? Through prayer, we can do something, we can accomplish something. You wanna see change in the world for the glory of God? Begin by praying. You wanna see people saved and set free? Begin by praying. You wanna see restoration in your marriage? Begin by praying. This is why we put such an emphasis on prayers. You notice like 90% of the announcements today were about prayer. This is the reason why every single Tuesday morning at 7 a.m., we have a prayer meeting. This is why we, we take the first Tuesday of every single month and we, we, we pray and worship together. We have kids ministry so that anybody and everybody can come and nothing should hinder you from coming. It's why we're, we have nightly prayer leading up to Easter. It's the reason that we pray at the beginning of the service and after the first set of worship and at the beginning of the sermon and at the end of the sermon and at the end of the service, we believe that there is power in prayer, that it actually works. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray because they knew that when Jesus prayed, stuff happened. Why would Paul, the apostle, ask the church to pray for him? Because he knew that prayer changes things. He knew that prayer worked. But it's not just that prayer works out there, but prayer works in here. Prayer works in us. I actually wonder if this is part of the reason why the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Jesus was perfect, he was God, and so he did not sin, but he was human, fully God, fully man. And so then what he experienced was all the stuff that humans experienced. Jesus felt things like stress and anxiety and sadness and exhaustion and pressure. And often he would retreat from everyone and go and pray. And then it appears that when he came back, he would be uh, refreshed and rejuvenated and ready to continue ministering to people. It seems that this was not only something that Jesus enjoyed, but maybe even something that in his humanity that he needed. I know for certain it's the case with us. It's not just that prayer changes things, but prayer changes us. How does prayer change us? Three ways. First of all, prayer changes our intentions. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, one of the things that he he taught them is to pray, our father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. In fact, this is how we see Jesus praying right before he went to the cross. He's in the garden of Gethsemane and he knows what's ahead of him. And it says that he's sweating great drops of blood. That's how stressed he is. He's sweating blood. And he prays to the Father and he says, Father, if there's another way that we can do this, if there's another way that humanity can be saved, can we do that instead? Because he knew it was ahead of him. But then he says, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. This is Jesus in his humanity submitting his will to the Father. This then is how we ought to pray, right? Submitting our wills to the Father. Lord, your will be done. It is one of the backbones of prayer. But what do most of us do when we pray? We come to God with our list of all of our desires and we bring it to him. We say, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Also, I have this great plan that I'd like to share with you right now. What is that, right? Where do we get that from? Now, does that mean that we don't share our plans with God or share our desires with God? No, the question is though, how are we doing that? Are we praying in that for our kingdom to come? Or are we praying for God's kingdom to come? Are we praying for our will to be done? Are we praying for God's will to be done? Last year, my wife and I really wanted to buy, let me rephrase. I really wanted to buy a house. My wife didn't care. She was like, we can live in an RV, an apartment, whatever, baby, it's fine. I really, really wanted to buy a house, with, the, ideally with the backyard. And then right around that same time, our landlord decided to sell the house that we were renting. And I was like, dude, come on, the timing, hello, I want to buy a house. Now we have to find another house. I was like, Lord, look, the pieces are coming together. This is something that you should do. And so I began to pray. I said, Lord, you have great power. I have a great plan. Can you please, with your great power, accomplish my great plan? (laughs) And so I began to pray fervently, daily. I kept praying, I kept praying, but after a little while I realized, "Ah, what I'm doing is not entirely biblical right now. Now listen, I don't think that God's mad when we pray like this, but I do think he's a little like, Huh, where'd you get that from? I thought it was a great idea, but the truth was I wasn't sure that it was what God wanted. I don't think there was anything wrong with it. It wasn't like a sin thing I was asking for, but I also been around long enough to know that sometimes I want things that aren't best for me. And God always has what's best for me. And so my confidence that God was actually gonna answer the prayer in the way that I wanted him to answer it was not that high. Because I was praying for a specific thing to happen. I didn't know for sure, am I praying according to God's will? Because Jesus said, pray, Father, your will be done. Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. I wasn't sure that I was praying according to God's will. And so I had to ask myself, what is God's will for my housing situation? Because I can definitely be confident that he'll answer that prayer. I can definitely be constant, confident that he will answer the prayer when I'm praying according to God's will. How do we know God's will? Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us. Now listen, the Bible is not going to say 2269 Gorman Street. That's your house, right? It's not going to say that. But it does say stuff about the situations in our lives. Listen, Dom, oh, though, this is, this is the part that I can't do. I don't have a Rolodex of all the scriptures. By the way, a Rolodex for everybody who's under thirty was this thing that we had in the eighties and nineties, where there was these papers, and we instead of going like this, we go like this. I don't have a catalog of all of the scriptures that apply to every different part of my life? How am I supposed to know that? I want to pray according to God's will, but if it's found in the Bible, I don't know all these Bible verses. How am I supposed to know that? Listen, that's why you have a community group. That's why there's people around you who are older than you in the faith. Somebody's got to know it. And if they don't know it, Google. (laughs) I'm not joking. Google it. Just as a test this week, I, I, I typed this in, in Google. Quote, what is God's will regarding my housing situation? Scripture, the first one that came up was some weird, obscure Old Testament scripture about houses. But the second one, look at Philippians four nineteen, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Scripture says that God will provide your needs. My family needed a house. Did we need to buy a house? Unfortunately not. Did we need a house with a backyard? I mean, we have a dog. I'd like to think so, but probably not. But we did need a place to live in. So I began to pray in accordance with this. Lord, you said you would give us what we need. We're not gonna have a house to live in in another 30 days. Please, God, give us a place to live. And I am confident that you will do what you said you were gonna do. Lord, it is my desire. Also, I would love to buy a house with the backyard. I'm telling you that. I'm asking you for that. If it's your will, God, I am submitting myself and my will to your will. And that's exactly what happened when I began to pray for God's will. It forced me to surrender my own will. You can't do both at the same time. You can't hold on and surrender at the same exact time. As I prayed, my my intentions changed. It's not that we don't bring our needs to God or even our desires to him, but the way in which we do it changes. We do it while submitting, by letting go or while letting go submitting our intention and our will to him. Now, God did allow us to buy a house with a backyard and it was honestly miraculous because of the crazy market and everything so expensive and all of that. But what was more miraculous than that was the fact that God worked in me to allow me to to let go of what I so desperately wanted. Prayer has a way of conforming our wills to God's and changing our intentions. But prayer also has a way of changing our emotions. Often, some of the strongest driving factors that drive us to pray in the first place are because we're experiencing something on an emotional level. There is something that is moving in us that's causing maybe some unpleasant emotions. Many of us are not just crazy prayer warriors, but we go through these seasons of intense prayer. Generally, those seasons are connected to something uh, unpleasant that we're experiencing. We're feeling, we're feeling stress or, or pain or sadness or fear, discomfort in us, anxiety, and it moves us to start praying in the first place. But how cool is this? Our emotions can actually be changed as we pray. Philippians 4 says this, don't worry or don't be anxious about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. So there is this chain reaction here. As we submit our intentions and desires to God, we have no choice but to surrender. And our intentions are, as our intentions are changed, our emotions are changed. And I love that Paul includes this little detail because it's so important. He says, tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done, which means that we don't just show up to God expressing our needs or even sharing our desires. We do do that, but we do it while also thanking him for what he has already done. It's easy to forget that part, right? We, we like to just jump straight to the, the, the need, and the asking for stuff. But thanking him is actually kind of the key here. There was a shift in us when we begin to pray with gratitude. My wife Emily and I read this great little book, on, uh, this little Christian book on marriage called The Four Habits of a Joy-Filled Marriage. I want a joy-filled marriage. I don't want a sad-filled marriage. I don't want an anxious-filled marriage. I want a joy-filled marriage. And in this book, the authors talk about the neurological connection between thankfulness and joy. I love it when science finally catches up with something God said 2,000 years ago in Philippians chapter 4, right? Neuroscience has now discovered that thankfulness and recalling things that you are grateful for can actually change your neurological mental state from worry to peace, In other words, God designed us so that when we fill our minds and hearts with gratitude and appreciation, that our worry begins to dissipate. There is a direct correlation between our minds being fixed on God through thankful prayer and what is happening in our emotions. So prayer changes our intentions and then it changes our emotions and all of this eventually leads to a change in our actions Prayer changes our actions. Starts with intentions, eventually my emotions catch up, but then eventually my actions are changed. It can be easy when we think about prayer to almost like pit it against action. It's like, oh yeah, that church man, I mean, they pray a lot, but like they don't do anything in the community. Or yeah, they do all kinds of stuff, but like I don't ever hear them praying. Right, it, like, as if it's either prayer or action. But it's not prayer or action. Prayer actually leads to action. And prayer actually informs right action. I was making a joke earlier about me bringing you chicken soup when you're sick, right? And I've done that for people. But how and when did I get the inspiration to have that idea to actually do that? Generally speaking, somebody sends me a text, oh, I'm so sick. Please pray for me. And if I'm you know, doing what I honestly should. I don't just go like, Lord, help them." I stop and I pray. And as I'm praying, I'm like, God, please, they're sick. Would you please meet them? Would you show them that they're there? Would you meet every need? And all of a sudden I see chicken soup in my mind. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I think that's the Lord. Listen, it's not the devil. The devil's not telling me to bring them chicken soup. It's probably not me because I'm not that nice. I'm like, oh, this is the Lord, I think. My prayer informed my actions. How many times have you heard something like this, right? Somebody's praying for a need for someone. All of a sudden, God puts it on their heart to go and to meet that need. In fact, you probably heard people joke around about this. Be careful what you pray for. God might send you to go and meet that need. But it's true, right? Read the entire book of Acts. They didn't pray or do. They prayed and did and often it was the praying that led to the doing. Isn't this what happens in Acts 13 when they need to pick a couple of new leaders? It says in Acts 13, while they were ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit said to them, set aside Paul and Barnabas. What were they doing? They were praying and worshiping. As they're praying and worshiping, the Lord spoke to them and said, these are the leaders that you need. It doesn't say in the book of Acts, having prayed, they just kept praying and praying and praying and never did a dang thing. It says, having prayed, they went out. Having prayed, the Holy Spirit said to them. Having prayed, they went and preached. It is an inside out thing. Prayer changes our intentions and our emotions, which always leads to a change in our actions. I imagine that when Paul asked the church to pray for him. His motivation was multifaceted. He knew that prayer worked. Out there, it works to accomplish much. He knew that when the people prayed, God would move in his life and in his ministry and in his world. But he also knew that prayer worked in here. He knew that as the people prayed, they would be changed. And he's a pastor. He wants to see change in these people's lives. And so he's inviting them. He's saying, I need prayer. I need God to move in my life. But I also know that as you pray for me, you're gonna grow closer to Jesus and become more like Jesus. And everything that we've talked about today is designed in a way that should increase growth in us. It should cause growth in us and increase dependency upon God. Paul came to the church with a need saying, just like you need me to pray for you, I I need you to pray for me. Why? Because God has something that that I don't have and that you don't have. Will you come alongside me and bring this need to the Lord? And isn't that all that asking for prayer is? We make a big deal about it. Like we get all weird about it. We have, you know, on on Sundays during the second set of worship, we have the prayer team available on the right and the left of the stage. And people are in their seats like, I just don't know. Like I got this thing going on, but like I don't know if it's that important. Like do I really need, can't I just pray for myself? Why do they need to pray for me? I can just do this on my own. Plus when I get up, I might bump the person. And what are people going to think about me if I'm praying? Like we go through this whole thing. What are you doing? Why, why are we doing this? Paul, the apostle's asking for prayer. We need prayer. We were designed for community. In community, we need one another. But, Dom, oh, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be a burden to them. Then don't be a burden. Then don't be a burden. Here's when it feels like you become a burden, right? And when the other person feels like I'm burdened. When we come to them and say, I have this great need, and I'm kind of expecting you to do something about it. And the person is like, I can't meet that need. Now I'm burdened. But that's not what prayer should be. That's not what it is. It's me coming to you and saying, I have this great need. I know you can't meet it. Will you help me bring that need to God? And you're like, yes, I'm not burdened by that. What a joy it is for me to say, you've got a need. Can I help you by bringing that need to God? That's what it is when we're asking for prayer. This is what Paul was doing. This is what they got from him. This is what he got from them. I need you to pray for me. You need me to pray for you. You need the people. And they're in the God designed it. And in that, we are coming together saying, we're both recognizing there's something beyond us that needs to happen here. Let's come together and bring this to God because he's the one who ultimately has what we need. Amen? And so church, as Paul concludes this letter, one of the things he says is, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be upon you. As we come together, To the the second set in just a few moments here, we need to know that because of the grace of Jesus, we have an ear with God. We have access to God. We can actually bring our needs before him. And he says, come on in, come in boldly. Come in, come in. i got problems in my marriage. Bring it to the Lord. Ask somebody to pray for you. I'm addicted to this. Come and ask somebody to pray for you. I'm struggling with this, come ask somebody to pray for you. I'm I'm in this deep, dark despair, come ask somebody to pray for you, my kid is crazy. Come ask somebody to pray for you. I'm really struggling with this, I need a job. Come ask somebody to pray for you. We have access to God because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so then we can come boldly, we can come boldly confessing our great need to God, knowing that as we do so, not only will things change, but we will change in the process, amen? Let's pray. So Lord, I wanna ask this morning that you would increase our desperation for you. That you would increase our awareness of how much we need you in every single facet of our lives. I pray for us that we, like Paul, the apostle would recognize, wow, I could try to meet this need, whatever it may be, or address the situation apart from me bringing it to God. But Lord, we want to, like Paul say, I I need the Lord. I need the Lord in this. And so we ask that you would change our hearts. I confess, Lord, that I am so often um, just self-reliant. And I, I'm i going so fast and I'm so reliant on my own ingenuity that i I don't stop to bring it before you and just say, Lord, what do you want to do in this? And can you help? So for those of us who are like that today, we just confess it, God. We just confess our attitudes of self-reliance and we repent from that. We turn from that and turn towards you and say, God, we, we need you. We need you. We ask that you would create new rhythms and patterns in our lives where we, we bring even the smallest things to you and where uh, humility reigns and we're, we're willing to invite brothers and sisters like, hey, can you help me bring this to the Lord I, I, in prayer? Can you help me bring this to the Lord in prayer? We ask that you would do that even, even now. As we respond, in Jesus' name, amen. So I wanna remind you, church, that um, as we enter into this this second set of worship here, that the prayer team is on the left and the right of the stage, and it's exactly what they're there to do. You got something going on, come and say, hey, this is what's going on. Can you please help me by, by bringing this to the Lord? It is our joy, it is their joy to do that. The carpets are here so that we can take postures of surrender before God and worship before God, saying, Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get on my knees right now because it reminds me that this, I, I, I can't do this. I need you, Lord. There's a reason that all throughout scripture, there was these physical um, postures that are that are called out. Lift your hands, fall on your face, kneel before God, shout with the voice of triumph, sing aloud. There's all of these physical things happening. Why? Because as, as we are physical, our hearts often follow along with whatever that physical posture is. I encourage you to come get on your knees before God in a posture of worship and a posture of surrender. And if you're a Christian, the communion elements are here. The communion elements are here to remember that the, the, as you drink the juice, that the Christ's blood was spilled. As you, as you eat the cracker, that his body was broken. And in the same way that you needed him to save you, you need him today. There was nothing you could do to be saved. You came to the Lord and said, Lord, I can't, I can't save myself, I need you. I don't care if it's been a year, 10 years, 50 years. Today, you come to the Lord and say, God, in the same way, I don't need to be saved again, but I need you again every day As you take communion today, remember that the cross was not just sufficient to save you. It is sufficient for you today for everything that you need. Let's respond now.